Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Prop G Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Seventy-five years ago, the United States dropped the first ever atomic bomb on Hiroshima. It turned out to be an era-defining attack. Not only did hundreds of thousands of civilians die, but it instilled a fear of nuclear weapons and a sense of awe at their destructive power that pervaded and changed the world, leading, in part, to a wave of arms control agreements between the United States and the Soviet Union that helped us keep the threat of nuclear war down. But now, in the past 10 to 20 years, arms control agreements have come under attack, and especially in the Trump administration, the arms control regime that has allegedly kept the world safe from nuclear weapons has started to really fall apart in earnest. Today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, we're going to examine what has happened to the world's arms control agreements and what can be done to salvage them. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. I don't know why I said as always, because I was off last week, and I'll be off again next week. Uh, Hello, team. I hope you're happy that I'm back. So happy. Zach, happy to be here with you somewhat always. (laughs) Somewhat always. Part of the time. Hey, before we get too much into this episode, uh, I know some listeners are probably wondering why we're not talking about the explosion in Lebanon and the fallout from that. Uh, The reason is that our sister podcast today explained an excellent episode on it that included an interview with a Lebanese journalist and does a lot of really thoughtful work on the topic. So I'd encourage you, if you're looking for more details on what happened in Lebanon, to go listen to that. But we thought it was really important to talk about the nature of the arms control regime right now, because while the risk of nuclear war is is low, like really low, at all times, that risk is still with us so long as these weapons exist. And now the risk of a nuclear miscalculation actually is going up. People who watch these things and are obsessed with them, they're really concerned about what is happening to our arms control regime and how that could make a world-ending catastrophe more likely. Again, it's still really low, but the risk is slowly increasing thanks to these agreements that most Americans don't really know about or most people in the world don't really know about. And it affects all of us, literally every person on the planet. So this is a really important topic. Alex has just written a very, very long piece. Really, it's quite long, but you should read all of it. But yeah, look, I I guess we should start by talking about Uh, the history of arms control, because it's difficult to understand why people are so concerned about what's happening right now. 
if you don't understand how we got here. So let's let's roll all the way back to the aftermath of World War II and the U.S. nuclear use at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So a quick definition, when we talk about arms control, what we're actually talking about is agreements between countries to limit the size of their weapons. Uh, in this particular conversation, we're talking about nuclear uh, weapons. There are arms control agreements for missiles and things, and and those do feature in what we'll discuss. But generally speaking, we're talking about countries, especially the U.S. and Russia, or then the Soviet Union, limiting the size of their massive nuclear arsenals, seeing as they are the two with the largest amounts. Okay. So, World War II. August 6, 1945, the U.S. drops an atomic bomb on Hiroshima, kills uh, about 70,000 people initially, he heads up to about 200,000 over time. Three days later, August 9th, another one on Nagasaki, kills, if I recall, around 40,000, and then ends up with about 140,000 more dead over time. So, Massive loss of life. Let, let's not forget, of course, tons of radiation issues, tons of health concerns after this drops, um, economic devastation. But World War II ends in part because these bombs were dropped. Uh, so what happened? Uh, Jen is giving me the, the wishy-washy hand. I mean, th there's, a, there's literature saying that the nuclear weapons were part of it, um, but there is more complication. But for the simplicity of this story, let's just say that it played a pretty big part. Mm, uh, no, I'm not going to concede to that either. It's much more complicated than that. And the more recent scholarship suggests it's not. But we're not going to get sidetracked by this. Go on, Alex. Right. All right. Let me Then let me just say, so we can all be happy, when the we after the weapons are dropped, it played some role in some way with, the, with World War II ending. Um, okay. So what, what comes out of this? Um, well, there's a bunch of people going, wait a minute, that seemed like a bad idea. Uh, it was... Uh, pretty horrifying, uh, not only because of the scenes that came out of it, but because of the devastation that these certain bombs could produce. So what you had was the rise of, a, of an anti-nuclear movement uh, that sprang up in the U.S. and in Europe and elsewhere, basically saying like, hey, this is a pretty uh, devastating weapon, a pretty dangerous one, and we should probably not see this happen again. But of course, uh, the U.S. has it. Soviet Union also gets the bomb. And so despite this, you know, anti-nuclear movement, you still see the U.S. and the Soviet Union have the bombs, and it actually causes a lot of tensions down the line. Yeah. So, you know, Alex, in, in your piece, you lay out this, like, really, I think, fascinating kind of five big, key, important moments on the path to arms control. And like you said, the first one was, you know, the rise of the anti-nuclear movement, um, you know, in part directly in, in response to the use of nuclear weapons on Japan. Um, the next one is is a really critical one that I think a lot of people probably don't know or remember. It's I don't remember it particularly being taught in high school history class, but the U.S.-Soviet standoff over Berlin. So this happened in 1958. Um, Nikita Khrushchev, who's the was the head of the Soviet Union, the Soviet premier at the time, um, basically had a showdown with Dwight Eisenhower and then later on with, with President Kennedy. Um, it was basically this fight between the Soviet Union and the West over, you know, over Berlin, over Germany. Um, at the time, remember, it's divided, right? So the Soviet Union kind of has control over East Berlin. U.S., French, and British troops are in West Berlin. The Soviets want to get all of the Western troops out of West Berlin so that they can take control of the entire city of Berlin. Um, the standoff kind of escalates uh, when Kennedy comes into office. He gives this kind of dramatic 1961 speech where he kind of says we must be ready to resist with force. Um, and it, it gets really scary. And a lot of people worry that, like, this could be the first, 
like nuclear kind of conflagration between these two nuclear powers. Um, in the end, Alex, as you explained really well, um, there was a kind of back channel between Kennedy and Khrushchev that, that de-escalate, but it really scared a lot of people that like, oh my God, these two powers are literally like right up against each other and they could very easily go nuclear. Um, and then, you know, that again happened in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, which is something I assume uh, a lot of you are pretty familiar with, uh, the standoff between the United States and the Soviet Union over Soviet placement of nuclear missiles and weapons in Cuba, uh, which was arguably precipitated by the U.S. placement of nuclear weapons in Turkey. Uh, this is one of those things that historians like to debate, uh, that whether the U.S. or the Soviet Union is actually responsible for the Cuban Missile Crisis. But the point is, uh, the U.S. was so angry about this, about the the Soviet missiles being placed in Cuba, that the two countries very nearly went to war over the issue of whether or not uh, the U.S. would launch some kind of attack on, on the Cuban emplacements there. And the U.S. came very, very close to doing so. Uh, it was probably the closest the world has ever been to a nuclear exchange. There were a few other options, which were sort of accidents. And I will talk about those later because I'm kind of obsessed with them. Uh, but they're not relevant for present purposes. Uh, the reason that the Cuban Missile Crisis is so important is because it was one that was not just somebody saw something on radar and got freaked out. It was that the leaders of the two countries were like this close to launching nuclear weapons at each other. And that realization that the the situation between the two superpowers at the time was so tense that something like moving missiles around could potentially trigger a preemptive nuclear strike or at least a preemptive strike that could escalate to nuclear war created incentives on both sides to try to negotiate and tamp down on the nuclear arms race and keep nuclear weapons under control and create agreements that crucially, and this is something people don't fully understand about arms control agreements, aren't just designed to prevent people from getting more weapons. They are designed to place limitations on the kinds of weapons that they have in order to prevent weapons that might make it harder for the other side to detect a launch or might make it easier for one side to believe that they could survive a nuclear attack from coming into existence. The idea is to preserve the framework of mutually assured destruction such that everybody knows that if nuclear weapons are launched, it would be catastrophic for their side. Therefore... No one will ever dare launch a nuclear weapon in the first place. That's the idea behind the subsequent architecture of arms control agreements. And the U.S. and the Soviet Union developed a number of them uh, over the course of the 20th century. In order for, for these agreements to come into existence, there needed to be a, a few other things needed to happen. Yeah, and very briefly, you had China test uh, its first nuclear device in 1964. Uh, the Soviet Union, of course, had bombs, but Britain and France were the others. And so this was the U.S. going like, wait a minute. It's proliferating. It's going everywhere. Uh, we can't control it. And then, uh, relatedly, you had the Soviet Union and Chinese uh, break off relations or at least start to drift apart, not only because of the nuclear weapons. The main issue was a split in uh, really ideological differences over the role of communism in, in the world, but also in their own countries. And so, um, because of this, you started to have uh, the U.S. and Soviet Union come together and be like, all right, maybe we need to solve this nuclear thing. Uh, maybe we need to start making some agreements so we don't blow each other up and start to pull back from the brink here. So the U.S. and the Soviet Union come together. They make this kind of historic accord, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty in 1972. And, you know, without going into the, the gritty details of all of this, basically what happens is over the course of the next many decades— the U.S. and the Soviet Union come together and make a series of, of pacts, a series of agreements um, that 
you know, basically form the framework of, of arms control, of nuclear arms control. Um, they do things like, you know, limiting, like Zach was saying, the number of weapons, limiting the types of weapons. They also do really important things um, that are, are not specifically just about numbers and, and types of weapons, but that are about verification that actually really um, kind of underscores the entire arms control regime, which is essentially sets up uh, these different agreements, set up mechanisms whereby the U.S. and the Soviet Union and then later Russia can uh, essentially inspect each other's facilities, make sure that they are, you know, each other is playing by the rules. Um, they can also like, set up mechanisms whereby they can like talk to each other. So if if they're moving a missile around, say they're moving a, a missile from one facility to another, they can, you know, send a notice or actually have to send a notification to the other side and say, look, we're moving this over here because we need to work on it or whatever, so that you don't have, you know, a repeat of something like the Cuban Missile Crisis, where moving missiles around almost started a nuclear war. So it, it kind of, all of these agreements really set that in place. And, you know, over the past several decades, it has led to this, this kind of period of, of nuclear, you know, I don't know, stability, but of, of arms control stability. At the very least, we haven't been super worried about the two sides intentionally going to nuclear war with each other. That is to say, right. the United States and the Soviet Union, which have like 93% of the world's nuclear weapons. Right. And that's all starting to unravel. Right. Uh, so the process here starts with the George W. Bush administration after 9-11, uh, their, their orientation towards treaties and arms control started to change because the concern was less about war between nuclear-armed uh, superpowers or large powers and more about uh, a terrorist group or uh, a rogue nation affiliated with terrorists is the way the Bush administration thought about particularly Iran and North Korea and Iraq at the time, getting some kind of nuclear weapon and launching one at the United States in a kind of terroristic strike rather than a full-on nuclear exchange. So they started reorienting policy towards preventing that kind of threat, which also meant that arms control agreements that limited the U.S. ability to, for example, develop anti-ballistic missiles that could shoot down a missile when it was incoming uh, didn't make very much sense to the administration under this particular framework at that time. I'm not defending the move. I'm merely explaining the logic that led to it. There was a revival of arms control in the Obama administration, uh, which had, you know, the President Obama was famously very concerned with nuclear weapons uh, on, on a personal matter and had at one point discussed uh, getting rid of nuclear weapons entirely. His administration ends up signing a deal with then-Russian President Dmitry Medvedev that's a sort of major new nuclear arms control agreement called New START, uh, referencing an old start, uh, which is <laughs> an, uh, one of the arms control agreements signed uh, during the Cold War. And that was a real landmark. Uh, and it seemed like that between that and the Iran nuclear deal, the Obama administration was making progress towards a world of enhanced arms control agreements. But then the Trump administration comes in. And uh, I mean, you can, you can kind of guess what happens given the Trump administration's uh, Broad antipathy towards international agreements, not just the Iran nuclear agreement, but like the idea of international agreements in general. They're not fans. So uh, before going on to Trump, don't want to give the Obama administration a pass. They did, um, as, in order to get New START, uh, okay, a nuclear modernization program that many people are still very upset with because it will cost billions to do um, and to move forward, and people think it's unnecessary. But that was the trade they made to get New START. So we talked about. There are only three you really need to know when it comes to the Trump administration. One is called the INF, the Intermediate uh, Nuclear Forces Treaty, which is about uh, medium-range missiles. 
Another one called Open Skies, which is basically allowing overflights of countries that are in the deal to make sure that they could see how other, if other countries were developing armies or nuclear facilities or whatever. It basically was a confidence-building measure. And then New START, as Zach just outlined, uh, which uh, limited the, the ways that the U.S. and Russia could use certain nuclear weapons and missiles and, like, the size of those arsenals. Okay. So, Trump comes in. He's already pretty concerned uh, about nuclear weapons and nuclear war. In fact, he'd said in even Playboy magazines um, in interviews about how concerned he was about, uh, you know, just a nuclear hellfire, about a mushroom cloud, about going to that kind of conflict. And so it's something that he has thought about, at least, uh, even if it's not deeply, he has thought about and and seems scared of, and I've always thought he seems genuinely scared of, uh, nuclear war. So, all right. Yet, when he is in office, he starts to tear down um, nuclear agreements. We're going to skip over, like, North Korea and Iran here, although we should note Trump has tried to make some sort of nuclear deal with North Korea, and, of course, he is withdrawing the U.S. out of the Iran nuclear deal, although he says it's in order to get a stronger deal down the line with Iran on a whole range of issues that we've talked about on the show. But we'll start with INF. And the reason the Trump administration wanted out of INF um, is simply because they claimed, as the Obama administration did, that Russia cheated on the deal. Uh, in effect, that they developed the kind of missile that the deal prohibited. And not only that, but deployed it forward. And so for a lot of people in the Trump administration and those outside of it, uh, including some that formerly served in the Obama administration, they said, look, this is a bilateral deal. If one side is cheating, it makes no sense for the United States to stay in it. And in fact, uh, what it will do is limit America's ability to defend itself while Russia's developing, and so we would be stupid to do it. Plus, does, does the U.S. really believe in arms control? Would not arms control be strengthened if we held Russia accountable for cheating on deals like this? So uh, the U.S. withdrew from it. We are no longer an IMF, uh, an INF. Russia is no longer an INF. And uh, that is one arms control deal uh, that took some time to do make. It was made in the Reagan administration um, that is off the books. Yeah. And the second one is open skies, as Alex described earlier. This kind of allows, you know, overflights from um, by countries that are involved in the agreements, not just the U.S. and Russia in this case, but basically for the same exact reason as what Alex just laid out with the INF, uh, the Trump administration decided that the U.S. would withdraw from open skies. Um, they did this just recently in May. Um, it the U.S. isn't officially out. It, it kicked off, basically his announcement kicked off this like six-month clock um, before the U.S. can officially leave the deal. Again, the Trump administration is saying that Russia cheated, uh, that they've been, you know, violating open skies, uh, that it's kind of undermined the entire point of the agreement. Uh, therefore, the U.S. shouldn't participate anymore and we're, and we're going to leave. But again, you know, when they do that, Trump at the same time says there's a good chance we'll make a new agreement or do something to put it back together. So again, the kind of Trump MO, I'm going to leave this international agreement, whether it's on nuclear weapons or trade or whatever, but I'm going to try to get a better deal. The problem is, you know, and we'll get into that, whether he can actually get a better deal. There's on almost any, never a better deal. Yeah, on any of these things. Two quick things on Open Skies, just to clarify as well, Trump administration thinking, or at least Trump ally thinking. One is they were saying, look, when the deal was signed, we didn't really have these great satellites that can look in on other countries. Uh, again, this overflight deal of Open Skies is just like rickety planes going over areas and like looking down with cameras and being like, okay, that they're not building nuclear silos. Some um, of the plans are pretty nice. Eh, not really. <laughs> but but anyway. On this podcast, uh, we stand the SR-71. 
Wow. So, so much. <laughs> I didn't Blackbird. realize this was an SR-71 fan podcast. Blackbird for life. That is my favorite plane ever. Anyway. Re- the Blackbird's a pretty great plane. It's really um, cool. It is. Uh, but anyway, uh, these these look like 747s. They're not that exciting. But anyway, all, all this to say is that there are some who claim that, like, look, because we have more advanced satellites, we can basically do this kind of, they would say, overflights or spying uh, without the need for these planes. And We can on, just and, use Google Earth instead right, of we can open use skies. Right. right. And, and Planet Labs or whatever, and et cetera. So we don't need this, and we can spend our money elsewhere. And then, as, as Jen alluded to, the cheating was along the lines of, like, where the U.S. would always allow Russia to overfly American territory. The Russians would sometimes say, uh, nah, no. Uh, yeah. I don't remember. Yeah, there it is. I was going to say nine. Uh, <laughs> Niet. <laughs> and then I was like, that's, in, that's nine, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, Niet. Uh, and so there we are. So they want to pull out open skies. But the thing that has me worried and why I wrote this behemoth that Jen said she would cut and then made it longer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not going to let that go by <laughs> is, is new start, which is we are months away from that expiring that expires in February. Um, and it is the last remaining nuclear deal between the U S and Russia. So again, it's a basically just a, uh, an agreement along the lines of what kinds of uh, you know missiles and how many can you have and when can you shoot them, et cetera. And the reason the Trump administration doesn't want to be in this one um, is, or rather, I should say, there's an extension. There's an extension that literally Putin and Trump themselves can just decide up to five years, we're going to extend this agreement, which expires in February. Uh, Putin has said he would do it without preconditions. Trump is has said, no, we're going to hold here for the main reason that he wants China involved. Uh, that's at least what he says. And, there, and there's good reason for that. People say it's it's uh, not the craziest idea simply because China's arsenal is growing. It does have nuclear weapons, around 300. It's developing cyber um, abilities, hypersonic missiles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so bringing it into new start or at least start having some sort of trilateral deal is would better reflect the current environment that we're in as opposed to just a U.S.-Russia bilateral deal. Um, the critics of that play would say, and then I know Jen has something to say, um, but the, the critics of, of this would say that China doesn't want to be part of any arms control deal. In fact, it wasn't part of this originally, so why hold up the extension just to get China in? But um, if there is no deal, even though the U.S. and Russia are talking about it and inviting China, which is not showing up, um, we may not have this deal anymore in February, in which case, adios, uh, arms control that took decades and decades to make. Yeah, I just want to kind of add to what you said. Um, it, you know, it's not just that we would like China to be in here, and so we don't, we're not going to extend it until we get China in. It, it's it's that the deal itself, if China is not going to play by these rules, then the deal itself is hamstringing the U.S. and Russia. But in the U.S. side, the U.S. argument is like, look, if China is going to develop all these weapons that that we can't develop, because we're in this agreement with Russia, why are we going to be in this agreement? Because China is doing all this stuff and it's really dangerous. We're not going to be able to counter China if we stay in this agreement. So either we pull out of the agreement so that we can effectively match China or we get China into the agreement. So it's not just like, we'd love to have China as part of this. It's very much a sense of, you know, we would like to be able to compete with China and, and make sure that we're not at a strategic disadvantage with our nuclear weapons and our nuclear arsenals, et cetera. So just want to kind of clarify that. The problem, though, is that while there may be uh, individually defensible rationales for pulling out of each of these treaties that could make sense on its own, in aggregate, the decline of the arms control regime uh, pioneered by the U.S. and the Soviet Union during the Cold War and then extended sort of afterwards uh, in various ways – 
ends up overall raising the, again, still minuscule, but appreciable and scary given the stakes, risks of an actual nuclear war. And and that's the kind of thing we're going to talk about after the break uh, in a classic, worldly, cheery outro. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome back, worldly listeners. We have been talking about the recent uh, hits to the International Arms Control Agreement uh, regime, the way that we've prevented nuclear weapons from uh, spiraling out of control, uh, specifically focusing on agreements between the United States and Russia, which have made up the backbone a lot of a lot of the international arms control architecture. Well, one thing we've been alluding to, but but haven't really spelled out, are the ways in which uh, this is particularly dangerous. Right. And, uh, you know, we've been emphasizing the risks of nuclear war are low and they are. But the, the problem with nuclear weapons is that they really create incentives for one side to go first in an attempt to crush the other side's nuclear arsenal. Uh, and, it, and because, uh, you know, if you don't go first, then you might get crushed in advance. Uh, and you might not be able to retaliate particularly effectively. So that's why there are, there are nuclear weapons on submarines called second, second strike capabilities to ensure that even if your ground-based nuclear weapons get destroyed, that you still have a chance to retaliate, therefore deterring anyone from trying to launch a first strike. Again, the question is whether or not that's sufficient to deter some kind of first strike uh, and under what circumstances you can imagine an incident between, let's say, the United States and Russia escalating into a nuclear conflict, even though nobody directly wants one. And that's why you need things like, uh, if not overflights, then certainly some means of verifying and understanding what the other side is doing. That's why you want to have agreements that limit the types of weapons that can be developed in order to prevent weapons that might make one side feel like they could be more advantaged in in the case of uh, some kind of nuclear exchange between the two sides. And so all of these different agreements work on pieces of that. And as they unravel, uh, the risks of some kind of exchange between the two countries, let's say Putin decides he wants to try to test NATO's resolve by sending uh, little green men, that is to say unmarked soldiers, into uh, a NATO country like Estonia, well, there's that. that's a functionally, given the way that NATO works, an attack on the United States. And so the question is then in that sort of scenario, what are the steps the mistrust and the the lack of communication and the lack of transparency surrounding nuclear weapons that could lead the two sides to escalate. And that's why I'm so worried about all of these cumulative developments. Again, there may be an individually defensible rationale for scrapping, let's say, the Open Skies Treaty, but in a world where we're eroding trust between the two sides and eroding mechanisms of verification, 
the worst case scenario starts to become more plausible. And again, still really unlikely, but given how significant the risks that we're talking about are, uh, it, that really scares me. I don't know about you guys, but I'm concerned. Yeah, I think it's it's really worth noting, um, you know, when you're talking about like the importance of these these mechanisms and, and how these arms agreements work. So New Start uh, went into effect in 2011, and as of mid July 2020, so as of uh, the middle of last month, the U.S. and Russia had exchanged more than 20,000 notifications with each other about the state of their nuclear arsenals. That is so many. Um, and it just kind of goes to to really illustrate, like, this isn't just like uh, once a year we send each other a memo on where our nukes are. Like, this is very serious. Anytime we do kind of, you know, any sort of, you know, movement or, you know, adjustment to our nuclear arsenals, we notify Russia so that there isn't any sort of, you know, confusion or, or miscommunication uh, or miscalculation. And so, like, these are very real, tangible things that are, are involved in these agreements. They're not just like theoretical, like we pinky promise to not do nuclear things. Like they're very, <laughs> which is like the, <laughs> by the way, worst pinky promise ever. But, uh, but like, but in all seriousness, the, these are real mechanisms. And, and if these go away, right, like we already have, you know, so much tension with the U.S. and Russia right now, um, you know, and just imagining the, the kind of miscommunication that can happen is really scary. And that's why these sort of these sorts of mechanisms are so absolutely critical. Yeah. I mean, I think the the most immediate consequence and 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 we're seeing it now is that there could be an arms race after all this, right? So if you remove the limits on the kinds of missiles and weapons that you can develop, well then countries are probably going to start building or revamping those kinds of missiles and arsenals. So you see Russia right now working on a hypersonic missile. Whether or not it works or is even close to working is a separate issue. It also claims it's nuclear-powered, which is, like, scientifically really hard to produce, if not impossible. Um, the U.S. military has recently shown off a hypersonic missile. And and those are troubling because a hypersonic Fair. missile is very hard to intercept or detect quickly. Yeah, no, exactly. They, they go so fast, and, and, and their cruise missile flies so low to the ground that, like, they, you, you can't stop them. They, they, again, missile defense that we've talked about on the show is, a, is effectively shooting a bullet with a bullet. Well, if one bullet moves too fast and is undetectable, that bullet's probably going to hit its target. Um, so there's that. Um, you have Trump wanting to invest more in nuclear modernization following the Obama administration's lead on that. Um, you have China building up its military and its nuclear arsenal and its uh, other conventional missile capabilities and, and nuclear missile capabilities uh, in order to fend off the United States and deter aggression. And then uh, there's a, there's a deal that if, that exists. It's uh, it's called the NPT, which the Non-Proliferation uh, Treaty. That. Uh, and there's a deal at the heart of it, which is that the countries that have it's the 50th anniversary of it, like now, uh, and. There's a deal at the heart of it, which is the countries that have nuclear weapons like start to decline their, their numbers, um, and those that don't, don't seek one. Well, if you remove the limits um, to uh, from countries that have nuclear weapons and they start developing more, then you may have other countries go, well, I want it too. Um, and so a lot of this is not just like the politics of the U.S. and Russia or, or you know, U.S., Russia, China. A lot of this is the signals that nuclear-having states send to non-nuclear-having states and other countries in the world going like, hey, this is a norm here in the world that we have nuclear weapons, we know it's bad, we're doing our best to, you know, limit them and, and sort of dismantle them slowly because you can't just 
sort of do it all at once for myriad reasons. But if that signal is gone, then you kind of have a free-for-all. Yeah, you know, and that's I think that's a really important point because it, it helps move us away from just the U.S. and Russia and and to this kind of broader global, you know, conception of, of how we think of nuclear weapons and how countries see them as important or not important to their international security. Um, and it, it's really scary. Just this week, uh, the Wall Street Journal had an exclusive that China is apparently helping Saudi Arabia develop these uranium or kind of mines that can be used to mine yellow cake, which can then be eventually processed and potentially used in a nuclear weapon. Now, it's not news that that China and Saudi Arabia have agreed to work together on, on nuclear issues, um, but, you know, this is kind of a, another development um, in that kind of space. And, you know, Saudi Arabia says, look, we just, we're trying to diversify our, our energy portfolio, right? Like we, because, you know, Nuclear energy is a thing. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to make nuclear weapons. Um, and Saudi Arabia has for a long time said that it's going to diversify its country to be not so reliant completely on, on oil. The problem is that when you, you know, that that may sound reasonable, right, on its face. Like, oh, it's just for nuclear energy. That's fine. But when you look at it in the context of the U.S. pulling out of the Iran nuclear agreement, right, and, and the, the possibility of Iran going after a nuclear weapon, you, you kind of then see it in the context of a broader regional arms race where, well, Iran gets the bomb, so Saudi needs to get the bomb. Uh, and you also have, you know, kind of uh, this broader kind of issue of proliferation. And so having the breakdown of this kind of these global norms around, you know, the commitment to getting rid of nuclear weapons rather than getting more of them is really, really important in like a very tangible way immediately right now. It's also uh, worth noting that a lot of what we take for granted about the way that we think and talk about nuclear weapons is actually pretty contingent and could could change pretty rapidly. One of my favorite books on the topic uh, is Nina Tannenwald's work on the nuclear taboo. Uh, she's a political scientist at Brown. And her book argues that the reason that we haven't seen any uh, nuclear use in terms of an actual deployment of nuclear weapons during an armed conflict since World War II, is that political leaders have constructed, and political leaders and, and NGOs and, and various different people who are involved in the deliberations here, have constructed an idea that nuclear use is not acceptable as part of regular combat and as part of military operations. And this is uh, something that, that people have come to believe as a, as a matter of ideas and ideology and moral thinking, but it's not necessarily obviously the case at the level of strategic doctrine, right? Early after World War II, in the various different conflicts the U.S. saw itself in, like, for example, the Korean War, leading American generals advocated for the use of nuclear weapons, of limited use of nuclear weapons, against non-nuclear foes with the uh, attempt of winning a conventional war. The idea and the thinking was that nuclear weapons are a weapon like any other kind of weapon and can be deployed as part of any kind of regular military exercise. President Truman shot that thinking down despite being the only president to have been in office while nuclear weapons were deployed in combat of, of any country, only head of state. Uh, but, you know, that, that was not obviously the case. It wasn't clearly that things were going to go that way. And the more that we evolve towards a permissive international structure where nuclear weapons are normalized uh, and become something that can be developed again without fear or sanction or general threat, or at least, you know, proliferation and the idea of, of more of deploying them more normally, 
becomes routinized, the higher the risks will be that we'll see nuclear weapons use in our lifetime. And the U.S. has, has taken concrete steps in this direction, namely by putting uh, low-yield nuclear weapons on a submarine. Uh, the whole point of these weapons, they're, they're much smaller than what you'd ordinarily associate with a nuclear bomb. But the purpose of them is to be able to use them in combat, to use them as was envisioned during by generals during the Korean War. Uh, as, as part of a thing that should, according to its proponents, prevent escalation. To my mind, it just makes it more likely that they get used during combat. Yeah, and I mean, those days are back, as you um, rightly note. This it should be said that the Trump administration did like a, a nuclear strategy review, missile defense review, and what was in it was this notion that low-yield nuclear weapons, tactical weapons, are like a good idea because um, it gives the commander on the ground more flexibility to use them. Uh, but the thinking in terms of deterrence that we've talked about on the show, and I know we've, we've hit this point before, but I think it's important to mention, is the Trump administration's thinking here is that if there are more usable weapons, then deterrence goes up in the sense that, like, well, if it is more likely that the U.S. would use such a weapon, then it would deter another country from taking a provocative action. Right. Uh, what, the, what the document said, the Trump administration's strategy said, was that the U.S. would consider using such a weapon in the case of like a non-nuclear attack or a non-conventional attack. In fact, it could even be like a cyber strike. Like let's say China or Russia hacked a, a certain American city's electrical grid and shut it all down or large parts of an American electrical grid. Well, that would at least consider or at least trigger the thought that we could respond with a low-yield nuclear attack. Um, that is what we're thinking about now. So this is where the Trump administration's head is at, uh, collectively. It's this belief that the old arms control regime is no longer really applicable to today's uh, environment. And as we've laid out, there are some at least logical reasons for why that could be. Um, although in this grander picture, what you're seeing is the Trump administration deciding that, in fact, sort of a more aggressive nuclear posture would lead to more nuclear peace. But there are tons of people saying that, in fact, uh, that's making the risk of a nuclear catastrophe higher. Not high, but higher. Yeah, and I think, you know, the idea of of using these outside of even, like, a, a conflict with another nuclear power, I think, to me, you know, and thus, you know, kind of then lowering, you know, the, the threshold for use more broadly, um, you can see very real cases where, you could consider the Trump administration considering doing that, right? So what I think about when I think about this is Afghanistan. Um, you know, Trump already basically has allowed his generals to use really, really big conventional bombs. So the... Uh, mother of all bombs. Yeah, so the massive ordnance air blast, the Moab also called the mother of all bombs. So... Um, in 2017, the U.S. dropped that bomb under the Trump administration on some ISIS caves, essentially. And, you know, again, not a nuclear weapon, just a really big bomb. But you could see if we had maybe tactical nukes in play where Trump might consider doing something like that elsewhere. Or, again, uh, he <laughs> has mused uh, as recently as, as last year uh, that he could wipe Afghanistan off the face of the earth if he wanted to and and defeat the Taliban, but also literally just destroy the entire country of Afghanistan. Now, you know, you may chalk that up to Trump just being Trump and saying that, but the fact that Trump is the president and, you know, could actually potentially cede more uh, authority to his generals to use low-yield tactical nukes, you could see that being a possibility. And again, you know, yes, it's a low-yield nuke. It's still a nuclear weapon. And that goes to to 
effectively destroying that nuclear taboo that, that Zach was talking about. And the more you have that normalized, the more it becomes likely that you'll see them in other conflicts. And then you just have this spiral out of control. And that's where, you know, people like the three of us get really, really scared when we see the ends of these kinds of agreements. Because, yes, it doesn't mean that, you know, as soon as this agreement, that, you know, New START lapses in February, the next day we're going to have a nuclear war. Like, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is kind of a, a gradual series of chain, you know, chain reactions and events, <laughs> not to chain use reaction, nu- nice. nuclear pun on chain <laughs> reaction, completely unintentional, but really glad I did that. Um, but but seriously, you know, kind of like the, a domino effect where, you know, gradually these things lead to other things and eventually we end up in a really scary nuclear situation. And so I think that's really what we're trying to impress upon you guys to to understand. And, and we really want, you know, people to be thinking about, you know, nuclear arms control is not something that you think about on a daily basis, but it's serious and it, and it really matters to the future of, you know, humanity. And, and the last thing I want to say on this point, um, just related to what Jen was just saying, is that the nuclear weapons are not this thing, they seem hyper-rational and that everybody thinks about them carefully and develops these policies that are designed to make sure that they're only used under certain circumstances that are in a way that should minimize their use. But it's important to emphasize the role of chance in the fact that there hasn't been nuclear exchange and individual judgment, because these things are a lot less certain than they may sound when you hear about high-level nuclear strategic doctrine. For example, in 1963, a Soviet lieutenant colonel saw his computer light up with uh, a thing that said launch, that there was a U.S. launch coming at them. It turned out what was actually happening was the sun's reflection off of clouds, but his computer misinterpreted that as an American preemptive strike. And it was up to him to decide whether or not to launch a retaliatory strike, what he thought would be. He didn't. But it's this guy, Stanislav Petrov, who I think we now all rightly remember as a hero, uh, that prevented us from getting into a nuclear exchange in 63. And there are more recent incidents. Uh, there are really scary ones in 1995. Uh, this is, again, after the Cold War, where a bunch of uh, American-Norwegian scientists launched a science rocket, not anything like a nuclear weapon. But the Russian government didn't tell their radar technicians, and it looked to one of them like there was an American nuclear missile incoming. And so Russian President Boris Yeltsin at the time had a decision to make as to whether or not he thought the Americans were striking. Now, given the geopolitics of the time, that seemed very unlikely, and Yeltsin ended up not launching, obviously, and things were fine. But think about those two incidents and think about the way in which technical glitches or a lack of information being conveyed through the proper channels created the risk for for an apocalyptic nuclear exchange. Now imagine uh, something similar happens in countries that are in a more antagonistic relationship, perhaps maybe uh, India and Pakistan, India and China, the United States and China, North Korea and the United States. And think about this sort of thing happening under conditions where the arms control framework internationally has been eroded, more advanced nuclear technologies that incentivize first strikes are deployed, and there's just generally not good communication and high levels of mistrust. Well, you can imagine things going the other way, right? And and again, I'm not saying any of that is likely. None of us are saying that. What we are saying is that this is a risk that can't be ignored, and given the stakes, requires some kind of more assertive diplomatic effort to prevent these sort of things from spiraling out of control. And just you know, to add to Zach's list, uh, there's always the chance of accident. You actually had a uh, plane break up over Goldsboro, North Carolina, 1961, an American plane. 
and nuclear bombs dropped uh, down. They didn't explode, but you could imagine what would have happened if they did. So that's the kind of risk we have just carrying these weapons. Um, but let me offer some good news. One is that the Trump administration is in negotiations with Russia right now over extending New START and potentially other arms control issues. So despite all the tough talk, despite the general ideological orientation of this administration, it is possible um, that we actually have more arms control, uh, not less, by the end of it. In Let's say Biden were to come into office. If he wins in November, he is committed to more arms control, has committed to extending New START. Uh, and so I think it is possible. Uh, there are many, re you know, don't vote for whoever you want, but it does seem that the future of arms control, the future of nuclear issues, um, the nuclear risk is at stake in this election. Um, that there are at least very diverging viewpoints on where the U.S. could go. So this isn't a fait accompli, right? It is possible that America's nuclear future and global nuclear risk goes down. Um, so that's something to keep in mind when you're thinking about, like, after we've talked about everything being scary, again, the risk is low. There are some movement towards more arms control. It's not all going away yet, but we're close. So that's our show today, folks. I want to thank our producer, Jackson Bierfeld, for all of his hard work on the episode. And I want to encourage all of you to rate and subscribe and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts. Reminder, I'll be off again next week uh, on what's probably my last vacation before paternity leave. Uh, so I'll be with you uh, through the fall, at least after this. Uh, but but in, we will be here. So please still tune into Worldly. That's right. That's right. And remember, it's paternity leave. It's only temporary. And it's not happening yet. So... Anyway, you guys enjoy next week's show without me, and uh, I will see you when I'm back. Bye.